Right, welcome to the uh, From Poverty to Power uh, podcast. With me today is Evans George Onyego from uh, Kenya. He's the director of Caritas, the Catholic organization in Maralal in northern Kenya. We've been together in a workshop on localization, uh, the idea that in, in humanitarian response in particular, we need to move decision-making and money to local organizations. Well, Evans actually runs one of these local organizations, so we're going to talk to him. I'm going to talk to him about what it's like. So, welcome, Evans. Thank you. Um, could you give me a bit of background on your role and on what's going on in northern Kenya? Yeah, uh, my name is Evans Onyego. I work for Caritas Mararal. Caritas is the social, humanitarian and development arm of the Catholic uh, Diocese of Mararal. So, basically, we cover... Uh, the larger Samburu County in northern Kenya. And this is an area where we work with uh, nomadic pastoralist communities who mostly keep livestock and uh, they move from place to place in search of water and pastures. And uh, it's an area that is most, in most of the cases, is affected by conflict and uh, drought. So these are the key uh, disasters that have been happening uh, in that area. And we work with the communities on an integrated uh, development uh, to help the, the poor communities solve some of the challenges that they are facing and also build on uh, resilience of those communities. So the communities are pastoralists. They've got cows, camels. What have they got? Cows, camels, and goats and sheep. Uh, goats and sheep. And they're moving around. They're nomads. And there's lots of conflict. Yes. So where's, tell me about the conflict. This is the problem we're trying to... Uh, the conflict revolves around uh, access to water and uh, pasture. You know, with a pastoralist lifestyle, uh, where there is pasture is where they will go. So the issue of boundaries does not apply to them. But, of course, with the demarcation of land and uh, naming of places uh, with uh, certain ethnic communities, then it means other communities are restricted from moving uh, to those places. Of course, with the keeping of livestock, when there is a drought, they have to move further from their homes. And it's during this movement that there is a conflict between these communities. One of the things is uh, the traditional fallback areas, which used to be there, are no longer there because now they are occupied. Because in the past, you couldn't occupy those places. They were left for the hard times. They would leave some water points to be used during uh, the, the difficult times. But now with the increasing population, it's not possible to have such areas. So they move from places to place looking for water and pasture. Talking about the pastoral uh, conflicts, uh, this is not something new. It's been there historically, but now it has changed with the introduction of uh, automatic guns. In the past, they would just use uh, clubs, rungus, and knives, but now they're using uh, automatic guns which also in the past they wouldn't kill children and women. But now we are continuously seeing indiscriminate killing of all genders and all people, uh, which is quite unfortunate. Okay, as yeah. is your phone. So yeah. <laughs> if you could turn it off, that would be yeah, great. Maybe, yeah. um, and you run Caritas, which is the local branch of the International Catholic Relief Organization. Yes. Uh, are you a priest or what's your background? Uh, I'm a lay person. Okay. Of course, I, I attempted the other one, but I couldn't make it. So, so you're a I'm failed a priest. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I'm uh, better placed as I am to, to give my services to back to the community okay. and to the church. And are you from Maralal? I'm from Maralal, born and brought up in Maralal. Okay. So All it's right. my home area. 
And the church is a very significant player in Kenya, I believe. Yeah, uh, we used to call the church uh, the government of northern Kenya uh, because right from the time the missionaries came, one, their approach was uh, building of schools, building of hospitals and social development of the people. So they didn't start by building the churches. And this is how you find, like for example, most of the leaders in this area were taken to the church, to the school by the church. So the church is very significant and it's been running so many development uh, initiatives in northern Kenya. Before the government of Kenya came up with the devolution, uh, the church was still seen as the government of northern Kenya. So it's so powerful. So that, I mean, that's interesting because I, I talk quite a bit about how we need to recognize the importance of faith-based organizations because they have a kind of legitimacy and roots that um, more recent NGOs don't have. And is yes. that the case in, in Maralal? Uh, it's the case. Uh, I give you an example uh, when there is conflict. Uh, most of the organizations cannot even move uh, between these conflicting communities. But because of the kind of respect that the church commands in this area, it's able to move uh, between these communities. And that's why also the church has been uh, very much respected as an agent of reconciliation uh, in this area. I mean, I think, yeah, we tend to underestimate the importance of trust. Um, that often we, we concentrate on technical processes, on technical assistance, on management structures, but actually trust seems to be an absolutely crucial asset in these kind of discussions and, and these kind of conflict areas. Is that...? Yeah, yeah, because uh, one of the things is, uh, of course, the community uh, trusts the church as a neutral agent, as an, based on the history of the church and what the church has been doing in this area. So it is so much respected and also trusted as an agent of reconciliation. And that's why it's the only agent that can bring all these people together. Okay, so that's where you come from, that's what your organization, that's the origins of your organization. Yeah. Now let's talk about this massive international structure, which is the humanitarian system. Yes. So, you know, it's 14, 15 billion dollars a year, I believe. Um, uh, it, it comes through a variety of channels and it ends up, some of it, in northern Kenya. Yeah. So let's talk about how that system looks from where you are working and, and trying to make things better in northern Kenya. How do you understand the role of the humanitarian system and, and the, especially this issue of localization? Um, I think the issue of localization is quite uh, timely. Of course, it's informed by different factors, and one of the factors is uh, the fact that local organizations are better placed in terms of uh, addressing humanitarian issues uh, at the local level. The reason being that when there is any crisis or any emergency at the local level, the first responders usually are the local communities. Usually I say the women in the village, and they respond first by calling for help. So that's the first kind of response. And uh, even within this crisis, because they are not new, they've been happening, uh, people have been surviving. And they've been surviving because back at the local level, they have a support system, a traditional support system that they are used to. So this means, uh, of course, uh, when they are overwhelmed, then the international uh, organs and organizations come in to support when they are not able to cope with, uh, with the extent of the emergency. So that means uh, the first responders are the local communities, then of course the local organizations that work within that particular area. Unfortunately, in most cases, when these international organizations come in, 
and they don't even recognize the role played by these local communities and the local organizations. So they just come in, they respond to the emergency, and they move out. They leave the local organizations to the burden of probably addressing some of the challenges created also by the response of uh, the, these international organizations. Of course... Can uh, you give an example of when the response also creates another a new problem? Yes, there are so many examples that uh, have been cited internationally. And uh, of course, if you, you, you read the report, Missed Opportunities, then it, it shows most of them. The understanding is any, any aid uh, that is given to any particular context, especially a context of conflict, or even if there is no violent conflict, we know conflict is everywhere because it's a way of life. So any aid that is given to this particular context, of course, it interacts with the... Uh, with the, with the issues around conflict. The aid itself does not cause conflict, but the aid itself can uh, exacerbate the ex existing tensions uh, between uh, the people. Uh, I give you a, a very practical example. Uh, sometimes we are, these international organizations, uh, one of their entry points probably could be the chiefs, the village gatekeepers, and you'll find even when there is a conflict, the village peacekeeper, our village uh, Gatekeepers are the ones uh, probably who are the cause of the conflict. And when you come, you, you enter through uh, these uh, village uh, gatekeepers. Then, of course, uh, you give them the legitimacy. And uh, you are supporting the oppressor and you become part of the op oppressing force. So these are some of the damages that are caused to these communities. And what would you do differently then as Caritas? Of course, one of the things is uh, we value conflict analysis before we go into any and for us this is a continuous process we try to to see what is the conflict context within this community and we measure our interventions what is going to be the impact of our intervention on the these particular issues of conflict and how can we minimize the negative and intended uh, results from our intervention hmm. okay um I was interested in um, your views on capacity building because there's this big conversation in the humanitarian system about how the international players, the international NGOs, the international donors build the capacity of local organisations. It sounds very patronising to me, but I'm just interested in how you experience capacity building. Do you like having your capacity built? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm also quite confused. Because uh, there's the question of uh, capacity according to who. Uh, in the beginning of this conversation, I told you these communities have been uh, responding to, to crisis in their own way, and they've been surviving. So, uh, of course, we are bringing in this professional way of doing it with the standards. But again, uh, these standards are internationally set standards, not local while we want to impose it on the local communities. I work with groups of women, group of youths, who've been doing these things without going to any school, to go, going to any class, but now we come and tell them whatever you've been doing is very primitive. You need to do it this way. And uh, so this capacity building is forced, forced on them. And there is an assumption that there is no capacity at the, at the local level, which I think is, is quite wrong. Of course, uh, they are coming with a more organized way of doing it, but that does not mean that there is no capacity at the local level. 
And it, it means capacity building can be quite disempowering because you're saying your existing way of doing things is not valid. You have to learn this new way. Yeah. And suddenly you have to go back to school, I, right? I, I want to give you a very practical example. I work with a group of women. These are volunteers. And uh, these volunteers have been doing a lot of work, especially responding to emergencies, responding to other small, small issues, addressing poverty. So it's, they're just organized and they're volunteers. When we come in to say now we want to build their capacity, then we come and create a need now for you to have a capacity. You need to have a bank account. You need to have an office. You need to do uh, this. You need to have staff working for you. So, of course, you, you create the need for more financial constraints within these communities. While within them, their own system was very sustainable, even without any external support. Mm -hmm. And this external support should come to support the existing structures, the existing system, not creating more demand and recreating the international organizations or national organizations within the local village setup. So if you're talking of uh, localization, then why don't we localize the way they are and support them do things in a more better way, but not creating more demand for that external support. So build on what's there rather than replace it. That is exactly okay. what I'm saying. Yeah, I hate this phrase needs assessment because that just assumes that all this community or this place has is needs, gaps, deficits, yeah. and we don't do a strengths assessment. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I think that's been it's been a very powerful message in this in this in this conference. Um, I wanted to ask you a bit about some of the other areas you've mentioned over the course of the last two days. Yeah. Uh, you talked about the role of boarding schools, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, in this area, as I mentioned earlier on, uh, some of the areas there, they don't have schools, they don't have hospitals, they are just marginalized areas since the time of colonialism up to now. Because you, you realize that Northern Kenya was part of the Northern uh, Frontier District, which I, I usually call it a uh, Northern Forgotten District, uh, <laughs> right from the time of colonialism. So, uh, and in one of the meetings, I remember one of the Pokot elders told me, Evans, you let the church give us a pen. If we feel that the pen is sweet, then we are going to take the pen and forget about the gun. But as long as the only thing we know is the gun, then there is no way we are going to change to the pen. So what does it, did he mean? He said, if the school will, be, will bring a difference or development to them, then they are going to go to, for, for school and do other things. But if there's no school, there's no development, then they'll continue uh, using the guns. Uh, there's an example of a child I met, uh, around seven years old child, and was carrying a bow and an arrow. Uh, jokingly, I asked him, what is this? He said, oh, this is a bow and an arrow. For what? He said, this is for killing uh, community X. Because this child is brought up knowing that any person from community X is an enemy. So when he's 12, 14 years old, he's introduced to the gun, and the gun is for what? For killing an enemy. So we came up with this idea of boarding schools for peace. So these children come together, they study together with the children from other communities, then they get to appreciate each other, they get to develop trust with other children and know these are not animals, they're just human beings like us, and we can stay together. Then even to some places it has ended up in uh, intermarriages, which of course enforces the peace. Hmm. Interesting. And you, so, you also have talked a little bit about the way you can use markets in the same way. Yeah. Uh, markets are very great connectors because some of those areas, as I've said, uh, they are quite far, they are very remote, 
uh, even access to foodstuffs and other commodities becomes very difficult. While their neighbors there, because of the they cannot go and buy from their neighbors because of the conflict. So by coming up with these peace markets, it means you are increasing interaction and uh, the level of trust for these people. Because they will come with their goods, sell to their neighbors, and their neighbors will, will come with foodstuff and sell to them. So this way, uh, you know, in order to buy, in order to sell, you have to talk to each other. You have to create a relationship. So, of course, it's going a step ahead and building trust among these communities. So, markets have been very, very good connectors for these uh, communities. Great. I mean, that's a, a taste of the things you've been saying over the last two days. I think it, uh, I'm going to put that amazing video you've got on, uh, on, on with this uh, podcast. Yeah. You mentioned something about one of the peace ambassadors threatening to kill you or something. What was that? Yes, 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 yes. Uh, this, uh, you'll see it on the video. Uh, he used to be one of the ringleaders of, uh, of uh, this conflict. And uh, I intentionally decided to, to work with him because in terms of conflict transformation is to see how do you transform this, those negative forces positively. And uh, I went intentionally to, to work with him. And uh, he admits that at one point they were planning to, to kill me because I was asking them to reconcile with the, with the enemy. But again, even him, he was shot. One, one day he was shot. And when he was shot, I think he realized again he's not also mortal, immortal. So I went to visit him in the hospital with some children from the neighboring community and from his own community. And uh, I think that was the conversion point for him. And he told me now, uh, we don't want to, to, to revenge. Let my blood be a sign of peace. And from that time, slowly we started working together. And right now, he's the chairman of the peace committee in that area. He's been very instrumental in terms of converting other uh, warlike people. And uh, he's now working very well for us and uh, for the community. That's fantastic. Well, so this blog is mainly, um, the podcast and blog is mainly followed by people in the development sector, the aid sector. So let's finish, because we have to start work again. Uh, let's finish on what would be your overall message to people working in the aid business, because it is a business. Yeah. Uh, it's $140 billion a year. It's a big business. <laughs> yes. What would be your message overall to them? Uh, I think one of the things is let us not stop looking at the needs analysis, as you've said. Uh, of course, uh, there is a lot of strength within the communities. When we go in, let us go to support those strengths while looking at how can we build uh, resilience of these communities. Let us stop these silos of uh, projectizing everything. This is livelihoods, this is development, this is humanitarian, and look at it from a holistic perspective. I think that's fantastic. Great message. Thank you very much, Evans Oniego. Yeah. Good.